Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Bridge Bank. Today's Monday, September 21st. Stocks are down, fears of a second virus wave are up, and we're focused on how Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death could upend American healthcare. As you've no doubt heard by now, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away Friday at the age of 87 after a battle with pancreatic cancer. We'll talk more about her legacy later in the show, but wanted to lead today with one of the cases she was preparing to hear because it could result in the loss of health insurance for roughly 20 million Americans in the midst of a pandemic. The case is officially known as California v. Texas, but it's not quite so simple. In reality, it's a group of states that want to maintain what's left of the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, against another group of states that want to scrap the ACA entirely, with the Trump administration helping the latter group. We never know for sure how a Supreme Court justice will rule on a case, particularly before there have been any oral arguments, but Ginsburg was a pretty staunch supporter of ACA, and her presence almost certainly would have guaranteed its survival. Now, though, it's a bit more dicey. Were the case to be heard by an eight-person court, Chief Justice Roberts could again side with the liberals, creating a 4-4 split. In that case, ACA survives because a lower court ruling would be upheld. But if Trump and Republican senators successfully add a ninth justice before oral arguments, well, then all bets are off. So is what happens to those who currently get health insurance through ACA marketplaces, and all of the private insurance companies that service them. It could, in short, become very chaotic, particularly since neither Trump nor congressional Republicans have introduced a replacement health care plan for the ACA that they would have successfully repealed. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Nicholas Bagley, a University of Michigan law professor and one-time clerk for former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. But first, this. We're joined now by Nick Bagley, a law professor at the University of Michigan. So, Nick, on the ACA case that the court is going to hear soon, just to lay this out very quickly, am I correct in understanding that the guts of the case is the Trump administration arguing that since Congress got rid of the individual mandate part of ACA a couple of years ago, that the rest of the law should fall? And the defense of it is, no, if Congress wanted the entire law to fall, that's what they would have voted on. Yep. That's pretty much it. The case was originally brought by a group of red states led by Texas. And the argument's actually even more cockamamie than the way you described it. The statute says each person shall buy insurance. And the original version of the Affordable Care Act said, if you don't, you got to pay a penalty. Well, the Republicans in Congress said, we want to get rid of the individual mandate. But to do it through this special parliamentary procedure called reconciliation, What they did was zero out the penalty as opposed to just take away the mandate altogether. So now the law has this naked instruction to buy insurance, but no penalty attached to it. You might think, well, a naked mandate like that doesn't do any work. Who cares? But the challengers here say, no, that's unconstitutional because Congress, when it eliminated the mandate, wanted to make the Affordable Care Act even more coercive than it was, which is, of course, absurd, right? Congress is trying to make it less coercive, less constitutionally problematic, not more. Just from a court calendar perspective, how does this thing go? When would arguments on this be heard? And when, in theory at least, would the court vote or render an opinion, rather? So the court is scheduled to hear the case on November 10th. 
in the normal course, it would issue its opinion probably in a big, complicated case like this sometime in the spring. So you're talking May or June. You know, all bets are off with a case this complicated with the political context here. It looks like the Republicans are going to try to get the new justice seated prior to the election. And if that were to happen, he or she, probably she, would rule on the case and would be part of the ultimate decision. I think I know this, but if the new justice, the theoretical new justice, were not to be seated by the time of these arguments, say shortly thereafter, could the justice still be part of an opinion or no? Do you have to actually hear the arguments to vote? The norm at the Supreme Court is that you got to hear the oral argument to participate in a case. Now, the court could choose to hear the case with a complement of just eight justices. But if they wanted to, if they split for four, or if they just thought it was better to have the full nine justice court hear the case, they could reschedule the case and have it heard again with the new justice sitting. That is a possibility. We could have the case oral argument, have it, could have it twice. There's obviously a lot of hypotheticals because that's really the only way we can do this right now because we don't exactly know who the justices are going to be. But if Trump were to get his nominee either before oral arguments, or if you say if this got delayed, but if this was decided by a nine-person court with a new Trump appointee, from the ACA perspective, if the administration were to win this, am I correct in saying this would really impact individuals for 2022, not 2021, because open enrollment for next year in health insurance will have already been a done deal by the spring of 2021? Yeah, it's actually a little more complicated than that. So it's true that for folk who bought private insurance, they're likely to be able to continue to maintain their private insurance coverage. But there's a question about whether the subsidies that would help them pay for that coverage for the rest of the year would continue to flow. They probably wouldn't, which means that for most people, their plans would become immediately unaffordable. There's also the problem that at least depending on how they write the opinion, the whole Medicaid expansion could go away. And that could take effect potentially immediately, which would render something like 13 million people uninsured overnight. For the insurance industry, I guess if you were somebody, say, who owns stock in health insurers, are you buying now because you might be about to get a whole group of new customers, or are you selling because the whole thing's going to be thrown into chaotic panic? Hopefully you're doing neither because you look at the case and you think, even though it's more likely to succeed than before Justice Ginsburg's death, the current court is not likely to rule in the plaintiff's favor. The lawsuit is pretty dumb. And even the conservative justices care a lot about the law. But I think you have a lot less confidence in your prediction that the Affordable Care Act is going to stick around. And the Affordable Care Act has been good for insurers. It's brought a lot more people on board. If they lose all those customers, they're going to lose a lot of cash. So my hunch is you're nervous. I hate asking you to handicap something, but you think it's possible that some conservatives could go against the administration on this. Leave Roberts out of it, but the kind of the traditional, more conservative wing of the court. Yeah, I think it's possible. You want to hold two thoughts in your head. The first is that the Supreme Court, you know, politics matters there. Politics matters everywhere. And it's not just calling balls and strikes. And I think we all understand that. But you also have to hold in your head the thought that the law matters too, right? So the strength of a legal argument is also going to play a role. And independent legal experts on both sides of the aisle take a look at this case. And they say, almost to a person, this is silly. These arguments are just bad arguments and that kind of, not even from like a part, it's just as a matter of craft, they suck. And so for the court to accept those kinds of arguments along the way to dismantling the most important piece of social legislation since the Civil Rights Act, you know, gosh, like that would be quite a step. And I think some conservative justices might balk at that. You were a clerk in the court years ago to John Paul Stevens. I'm thinking of Ginsburg here. How much do the individual justices discuss these issues with one another? In other words, obviously, there's the oral arguments and the lawyers try to be persuasive in those. 
How much interaction between the actual justices are there where they actually argue these issues amongst themselves? Yeah, it depends a lot on the case. Every case, they'll go back to conference and explain their positions. But how much extracurricular argument happens between the justices? I would say that for bigger and more consequential cases, there's a lot more sort of internal lobbying of one another than there are in the mine run case. But even for the big cases, they don't all talk to each other and they don't necessarily spend a long time having those sorts of college dorm room type discussions of cases. It's pretty professional. They keep it pretty tight. So I can imagine seeing some of that, but we're probably never going to know. Final question for you. I, I want to ask because this issue of uh, whether you want to call it expanding the court or court packing, depending, I guess, on which side you are, whichever phrase you want to use. What are your thoughts on the idea of possibly having more justices added to the Supreme Court? There's nothing in the Constitution that says the Supreme Court has to be nine justices. I think there's a very serious problem when we have created an institution that wields as much power as the Supreme Court, where justices sit for life, and where one political party, whether they be Republicans or Democrats, can get a lock on the institution for potentially many decades after their political coalition has frayed. So I think we've got a constitutional problem on our hands. How exactly to solve that is a deep and a hard question. I certainly think part of the discussion should be, should we make some changes to the court, either in the number of justices who serve, in the duration of time that they serve, or in any other way. But I think all of those conversations should absolutely be on the table. Thank you, Nick Bagley, professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Happy to do it. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the latest on TikTok, which is only getting messier as things go along. Over the weekend, it seemed that all the parties had reached an agreement, but now no one can quite agree on what was in the agreement. Making things even more complicated, President Trump keeps claiming publicly that there are parts to the deal that no one else thinks are in there. And now Beijing may scuttle the whole thing because it claims it undermines not just China's national security, but also its dignity. The bottom line, you can still download and use the app for now. Today, we're also watching a major stock market sell-off, seemingly tied to reports that Great Britain may institute new lockdowns in order to stem a possible second wave of COVID-19. Just for context, the Dow, NASDAQ, and S&P 500 are all down for the month of September. And finally, we'd be remiss in not saying something about Ruth Bader Ginsburg that has more to do with who she was as a person and less about who she was as a justice. Most of you probably don't know this, and I didn't know it until recently, But our producer, Naomi Shaven, was a published author at age seven, so you have to live up to that, with a book of letters she sent to important people, including their replies. Among them was the late Justice Ginsburg, who Naomi met multiple times while a child. I want to know how she'd describe Ginsburg to people who never had the chance to meet her. Obviously, she was a very small and diminutive person in her stature, but incredibly intense. She had these very, very intense blue eyes, and I have vivid memories across the three times that I met her, looking her in the eyes, and she made really strong eye contact. I think she was the kind of person who, no matter who she was talking to, was immediately invested in them and deeply empathetic. Even though I was a kid, I felt like she took me really seriously. You know, in the letter that she wrote me, she mentioned that she's also a Grandma Ruth. I had a Grandma Ruth. She said her grandkids called her Bubby, which she knew that I would know, you know, as a Jewish person, what that meant. When I met her in her chambers, she went out of her way to mention that Jimmy Carter had elevated her to the federal bench. 
So she had this Georgia connection because Carter was from Georgia. And that really, it stuck with me that she wanted me to feel connected to her. Obviously, I admired her so much, but she wanted to build that connection with me too. And I think that that empathy is what drove her professionally. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great National Pecan Cookie Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.